Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, a weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about the hemp industry and its legalization. Now, before I really get into this topic, I want to mention the roots of the word marijuana. A little while ago, I talked about a hemp MLM that someone told me that the word marijuana itself had racist roots. Though the way this was brought to my attention wasn't exactly super constructive, I want to make a note that legally speaking, hemp is defined as a cannabis plant with 0.3% or less THC, the main psychoactive compound. Whereas marijuana is defined as a cannabis plant with more than 0.3% THC. The word marijuana, while it can be dividing, also refers to a specific plant with a THC level while just saying cannabis in general doesn't. Cannabis just refers to a plant genus, a whole group of plants, which means that I want to refer to hemp or marijuana specifically, I can't use the word cannabis to distinguish that. I suppose you could use the word weed or pot, but since those are generally considered slang, they're not used by the majority of my sources. And I like to keep my scripts as consistent as possible. So please know that while I understand the potential controversy around using this word, it's also virtually impossible not to use it at some points in this video. That said, many who do use the word marijuana with negative intent are reinforcing racist stereotypes about the kind of people who grow or smoke it. And that's not what I'm gonna be doing here today. If anything, I want to break down, explore, and dispel some of those stereotypes and get to the real root of the anti-hemp and moral panics. So with that out of the way, let's dive right into it. If I tried to talk about the history of hemp throughout the world, I'd be here forever. So I do want to at least explore the role of hemp in the United States in today's episode and its usefulness before we get into all the fear-mongering and bans. According to my sources, North America was first introduced to hemp in 1606. It was used in paper, lamp fuels, and ropes. In the 1700s, farmers were even required to grow hemp as a staple crop, and many of our founding fathers, such as George Washington himself, grew hemp on his estate. It was also the fiber of choice for maritime uses because of its natural decay resistance and its adaptability to cultivation. Apparently, it was in the lines, sails, and caulking of the Mayflower itself as well, according to one source called Farm Collector. Hemp fiber was so important to the young republic that farmers were compelled by patriotic duty to grow it and were allowed to pay taxes with it. George Washington grew hemp and encouraged all citizens to sow hemp widely. Thomas Jefferson bred improved hemp varieties and invented a special break for crushing the plant's stems during fiber processing. Shortly thereafter, Robert McCormick, father of Cyrus McCormick, who invented the first successful reaper, patented a hemp fiber processing device. Through the International Harvester Company, Cyrus's descendants later contributed additional labor-saving harvesting tools to hemp farmers in the 20th century. Hemp crops quickly spread and arrived in Kentucky with settlers from Virginia just prior to the Revolutionary War, according to a 1919 article in the Kentucky Agricultural Experiments Station Bulletin Number 22. These settlers set the stage for what would become one of the most important and long-standing hemp industries in America. Along with Missouri and Illinois, Kentucky farmers produced most American hemp until the late 1800s, when demand for sailcloth and cordage began to wane as steamships dominated the seas. By the end of the Civil War, Kentucky was the only state with a significant hemp industry until World War I, and that state remained the nation's leading provider of hemp seed. 
hemp production did slowly decline as the demand for high quality domestic hemp fiber declined after World War I. As for marijuana, well, these early hemp plants didn't have high levels of THC. There's evidence that ancient cultures knew about the psychoactive properties and may have cultivated some varieties to produce higher levels of THC for use in religious ceremonies or healing practices. Even so, THC and cannabis extract was proven to have medicinal use during these times as well, thanks to the work of Sir William Brooke O'Shaughnessy, an Irish doctor studying in India. He was a Victorian doctor who, back in 1830, discovered that cannabis extract could help lessen stomach pain and vomiting in people suffering from cholera. He's even responsible for introducing cannabis sativa, or cannabis with a high THC level to the Western world, eventually leading to the FDA approving two drugs that are simply THC in pill form, Marinol and Syndros. To this day, Marinol and Syndros are FDA approved medications to treat chemotherapy-induced nausea, even though marijuana itself isn't approved. But why? What changed? Even if we weren't using hemp as much, there's no denying its usefulness. So how did it go from being a massive part of the 1700s to being completely banned to later in 1970, a controlled substance? Well, let's take a look at that now. According to history.com, in the United States, marijuana wasn't widely used for recreational purposes until the early 1900s. Immigrants from Mexico to the United States during the tumultuous years of the Mexican Revolution introduced the recreational practice of smoking marijuana to American culture. Massive unemployment and social unrest during the Great Depression stoked resentment of Mexican immigrants and public fear of the evil weed. As a result, and consistent with the Prohibition era's view of all intoxicants, 29 states had outlawed cannabis by 1931. And marijuana isn't evil. Scientists debate back and forth about it if it makes you lazy and unmotivated, though some sources say chronic marijuana use simply serves as an escape for those that are already unmotivated. The way alcohol isn't going to help an alcoholic address underlying issues in their life. Anything can ultimately be a crutch. People may become dependent on it, yet it is proven to be less addictive than many other legal and illegal substances we already know of. According to Scientific American, the gateway drug argument is hotly debated and also seems that those who are drawn to marijuana as such may simply be predisposed to drug use in general. In addition, individuals often smoke cigarettes or drink alcohol before they find marijuana. Should we also be asking whether nicotine and alcohol are gateway drugs? If marijuana isn't something you're into doing, that's absolutely fine. I'm not going to advocate for anyone smoking it here. Although some governmental consistency about what it is and isn't allowed based on science alone would be great here, and that's all I'm really saying. The way that marijuana was demonized is bad enough, but the way race was brought into it is absolutely something else. One article from Insider says that, not only did much of the media at the time present it as a gateway drug, but as something truly dangerous and violent. One of the men leading the campaign against marijuana was Harry J. Anslinger, a staunch prohibitionist widely credited with shaping Americans' domestic and international drug policies. During this time, he was the commissioner of narcotics at the Bureau of Narcotics in the Treasury Department. Not only did he spread these racist beliefs, but being a person of some authority, people took his word as credible proof. Not that he was the only one doing this by any means. The NCBI published an article that reads, once appointed, Aslinger began a campaign based on race and violence. Anslinger did not hide his prejudice with comments like, there are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the US. Most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz and swing results from marijuana use. 
This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and others. Anslinger helped popularize the use of marijuana instead of the more common cannabis to tie the drug to anti-Mexican prejudice. William Randolph Hearst sure didn't help with matters either. He controlled the journalism empire, dwarfing any modern media conglomerate and continued to pump out stories about how marijuana was evil and dangerous. Some headlines read, evil Mexican plants that drive you insane. And these articles would provide truly anecdotal evidence about average people that supposedly became murderers after smoking weed. One of his papers said, quote, marijuana is a shortcut to the insane asylum. Smoke marijuana cigarettes for a month and what was once your brain will be nothing but a storehouse for horrid specters, end quote. A Hearst paper in 1928 reported that in India, marijuana was known as the murder drug, and it was common for a man to catch up a knife and run through the streets, hacking and killing everyone he encountered. One of his most outlandish claims was that a window box full of cannabis was enough to drive the whole population of the US stark raving mad. That must be a massive window box and some really strong weed. But seriously, in addition to these bizarre claims, Randolph Hearst was racist, especially against Mexicans, as if you couldn't tell from the like evil Mexican plants headline. Yet Hearst spoke with authority too, and he had massive influence. Whereas Harry Anslinger spouted hate and false statements, Hearst was right beside him, publishing them and spreading them to the masses. According to one source, Hearst papers catered to urban working people, many of whom were recent immigrants. His papers favored labor unions, progressive taxation, and municipal ownership of utilities. They featured abundant pictures, advice to the lovelorn columns, and sentimental stories. Favoring Irish and German readers in particular, the papers condemned British influence and spread fears about the yellow peril of Asian immigration. He wanted personally to lead the Democratic Party to the White House, but the radicalism of his papers was a liability. They had endorsed political assassination as a mental exercise and printed a poem by Ambrose Bierce that joked about the death of a president. When William McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist in 1901, Hearst was blamed. Nevertheless, he was twice elected to the House of Representatives from New York City and won 40% of the votes for the presidential nomination on one ballot at the Democratic National Convention in 1904. He lost contests to become mayor of New York and governor of the state by narrow margins. He owned seven dailies, five magazines, two news services, and a film company. His obituary would have called him an important American on the left. In 1903, the trade unions of Los Angeles asked Hearst to begin a paper there so that workers would have a voice. He was praised by many socialists, including Upton Sinclair, who compared him to Abraham Lincoln. I had to double check to be sure that this article was referencing the same person who I was researching, but yes, the same William Randolph Hearst who ran articles about quote, marijuana crazed Negroes raping white women and playing voodoo satanic jazz music, end quote, cause that's one hell of a quote, was also compared to Abraham Lincoln. Some speculate that Hearst went after the marijuana and hemp industry so hard because of his vested interest in the timber industry, their competition, which we'll go over in just a moment. In the meantime though, let's keep looking at the way Aslinger, Hearst, and others would use racism and misinformation to feed their lies. In 1933, an ax murderer named Victor Licata also helped contribute to Harry's campaign when he brutally killed his parents. When Victor was evaluated by psychiatrists at the time, he was found to be suffering from what would then be labeled as dementia precox, or what is now more commonly known as schizophrenia. 
The doctors speculated his condition was congenital, and as far as I can tell, he wasn't under any treatment for it. Yet the local paper added in one small detail that Harry clung to. Victor had been smoking marijuana for several months. Seemingly every chance he got, Aslinger made reference to this case. When he spoke about it, he neglected to mention Victor's mental illness, but instead spun this tragedy to fit his own narrative. Marijuana had a hold on the day's youth and it was turning them into ax murderers. A movie depicting this was released in 1936, Reefer Madness, and it is just everything you could possibly want in a propaganda film. I mean, seriously, these innocent high school students try marijuana for the first time and as a result, they descend into madness. There's attempted rape, murder, hurting themselves, anything you could imagine can and does go wrong. You can find this on YouTube if you wanna laugh, though it's not funny the role that this propaganda did play in massive loss to ban cannabis and reinforce damaging stereotypes. Many sources, in fact, attribute Aslinger to being the mastermind behind America's war on drugs as a whole. After all, he ran the Federal Narcotics Bureau for three decades. He was the bureau. His war on drugs wasn't so much an actual war on narcotics as it was a war on culture. He was a xenophobe, a racist, and his own words have proved this. Even so, he was often rewarded for his actions when Congressman John Cochran of Missouri at the time saying that he deserved a medal of honor. This source says that Anslinger went after marijuana once prohibition ended simply so he wasn't out of a job. As Johan Hari explains in his book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, Anslinger's office was focused on cocaine and heroin, but there were relatively small numbers of users. In order to ensure a promising future for his bureau, he needed more, Hari writes. Marijuana was Anslinger's golden ticket. He used his office to trumpet the association between weed and violence so it could be criminalized. Whether it was so he wouldn't be out of a job, so he could inflict his racist beliefs upon anyone that would be receptive, or because he genuinely didn't understand or care to understand the actual science or statistics behind marijuana or a combination of the three, he conflated marijuana with violence and race all the way to the courthouse. NPR writes that in 1937, US Narcotics Commissioner Harry Anslinger testified before Congress in the hearings that would result in the introduction of federal restrictions on marijuana. According to druglibrary.org, Anslinger's testimony included a letter from Floyd Basquette, the city editor of the Alamosa Daily Courier, which said in part, I wish I could show you what a small marijuana cigarette can do with one of our degenerate Spanish speaking residents. That's why our problem is so great. The greatest percentage of our population is composed of Spanish speaking persons, most of who are low mentally because of social and racial conditions. Folks weren't just worrying about Mexicans and jazz musicians either. Within the last year, we in California have been getting a large influx of Hindus and they have in turn started quite a demand for cannabis indica, wrote Henry J. Finger, a powerful member of California State Board of Pharmacy in a 1911 letter. They are a very undesirable lot and the habit is growing in California very fast. The fear is now that it is not being confined to the Hindus alone, but that they're infiltrating our whites into this habit. Of course, while these grossly misguided racist beliefs played a massive role, no doubt, they aren't the only reason that marijuana was banned. And before we continue on to discuss some of the competition issues with marijuana, we're gonna go ahead and take a moment to thank today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by me. Well, more specifically by my merch shop. Multilevelmerch.shop is the place to find everything you need to support the show. We've got hoodies, sweatshirts, my personal favorite, mugs, and even phone cases, including ones with little Casper Bjorking on them and so many other amazing designs. 
Maybe you want your own Yikes on Trikes designs or join the Carb Crusaders. Either way, make sure you stay a good noodle and there's designs for that too. We ship internationally as well, so make sure to check it out. Another reason behind the band of marijuana does have to do with Hearst and the lumber industry, as we mentioned earlier. Strangely, the lumber and oil industries are a little tied into one another here, and let me explain. According to my sources, this chapter begins in 1913, when Henry Ford opened his famous automobile assembly line to start producing the Model T. In the 30s, he opened a plant in Michigan where they successfully experimented with biomass fuel conversion, proving that hemp could actually be used as an alternative to fossil fuels. Hell, decades later, Ford even built a bioplastic Model T that was not only made from hemp, but could run on ethanol made from hemp or agricultural waste. He was a step towards realizing his dream to grow automobiles out of the soil, wrote Popular Mechanics Magazine in 1941. Although it's not as if the entire car was made from hemp, there were absolutely some people upset by Ford's developments. Another source writes, Ford ran the first Model T on corn-based ethanol alcohol, but was quick to recognize hemp as a cheaper and more efficient fuel source. His engineers in Iron Mountain developed processes to extract not only ethanol from hemp, but charcoal and other industrial chemicals, including tar, ethyl acetate, and creosote. The 1919 prohibition against alcohol, coupled with the growing political power of the oil lobby, derailed Ford's plans. By 1920, gasoline had replaced ethanol as the auto fuel of choice. Yet, as I mentioned, this ties in with the lumber industry. See, this whole hemp working as oil news wasn't great news for a guy named Andrew Mellon, who owned much of the Gulf Oil Corporation, a company that recently opened their very first drive-through gas station. However, he was the secretary of treasury under President Herbert Hoover and owned the sixth largest bank at the time, Mellon Bank. So he wasn't about to take this lying down. His bank was the primary financial support of the petrochemical company by the name of DuPont according to my source. DuPont was developing and patenting many different forms of synthetics from fossil fuels, including synthetic rubber, plastic, rayon, and paint that GM used to coat their cars. However, Mellon Bank was most heavily invested in DuPont's sulfur-based process of turning wood fiber into usable paper. In 1916, Mellon's investment began to look like a money pit when the US Department of Agriculture chief scientist processed paper from hemp pulp and concluded that paper from hemp was favorable in comparison with those made from wood pulp. The paper produced by hemp fibers did not yellow over time, unlike the chemical drenched paper that was being produced at the time. In addition, an acre of hemp produces more paper than an acre of regular trees. Strangely enough, the actual production of hemp fiber in the US continued to decline until 1933 to around 500 tons per year. This is no coincidence. All right, so just to get our people straight here for a moment, Ford was making oil from hemp. Mellon, who owned Gulf, didn't like that. He and his bank continued to heavily invest in DuPont, Ford's competitor. DuPont had a lot of interest in the lumber market and who else had interest in this market? That's right, Hearst, the man that built a newspaper empire. My source continues. In the 1930s, a man by the name of William Randolph Hearst invested heavily in thousands of acres of timberland to make wood pulp for most of the newspaper industry. He was the owner of a large newspaper company that was read by more than 20 million US citizens in 18 key cities and arguably one of the most powerful men in American history. Since Hearst didn't want any competition from the high quality hemp paper, he had to do something. 
He soon teamed up with DuPont, who was providing Hearst with chemicals he used to preserve his papers at the time. Together, they would take hemp completely off the market. The DuPont Corporation was persistently lobbying in Washington, D.C., while Hearst began a racist smear campaign in his newspapers. A quote from one of Hearst's papers. Marijuana influences Negroes to look at white people in the eye, step on white man's shadows, and look at the white woman twice. Hearst newspaper was the fuel to the fire for the prohibition of marijuana. I'm sure all of you hear the phrase all the time that a few rich white old dudes basically control and create the system we live in. And as depressing as it is to hear, I feel like moments like these really do drive that point home. The fact is that Ford had a fantastic idea. Well, I'm not saying that makes him a good person and it said he was so anti-Semitic that he attributed all evil in the world to Jewish people. This was still a fantastic idea. I don't know what the world would be like had he further developed this and if our cars actually ran on ethanol extracted from hemp. Chances are there'd be issues with the system too. And I might be making a video right now about a massive hemp producer and how horrific labor is on hemp farms. The point here isn't that hemp is a 100% viable solution with no issues whatsoever, fossil fuel or not. Some sources say that if cotton is the king of slave crops, then hemp is the queen. If hemp were more common in the States today, we could very well be seeing the modern and recurring issues we do with cotton replicating themselves with hemp. The point rather is to say that the systems we live under shouldn't inhibit change or growth, nor spread racist, damaging, dangerous misinformation to keep control of multi-billion dollar industries. Now, as if there wasn't enough of a connection between all the players of this game though, as it turns out, One source claims that Andrew Mellon was the one who appointed Harry Aslinger, his niece's husband, to the Federal Narcotics Control Board in the first place. Because that absolutely does not sound like a conflict of interest at all. Yet it's not just the lumber and oil companies that had a vested interest in seeing hemp taken down, but plenty of other industries too. Some argued that hemp was on the verge of becoming a billion dollar crop, Six months after it was banned, Popular Mechanics published a 1938 article detailing its uses and proving that they were just a bit late to the party considering, well, its use was about to take a definite decline with the ban. Even so, in this article, they explained that hemp was the standard fiber for the world with great tensile strength and durability. They wrote, it is used to produce more than 5,000 textile products ranging from rope to fine laces and woody herds remaining after the fiber has been removed contain more than 77% cellulose and can be used to produce more than 25,000 products ranging from dynamite to cellophane. Machines now in service in Texas, Illinois, Minnesota, and other states are producing fiber at a manufacturing cost of half a cent a pound and are finding a profitable market for the rest of the stock. Machine operators are making a good profit in competition with coolie produced foreign fiber while paying farmers $15 a ton for hemp as it comes from the field. They made a fantastic argument for hemp, just a little bit too late is all. Another point they made though, is that while the blossom of a female hemp plant may contain marijuana and it's impossible to grow hemp without producing the blossom, the connection of hemp as a crop and marijuana itself was widely exaggerated. I love to see the arguments for legalization being made so early on, like right after the ban. Popular Mechanics was standing up for the science of hemp. It's nice to see that not everyone went along with the fear mongering. Anyway, while DuPont obviously didn't want the competition between hemp and oil, he had another reason for wanting hemp taken down. One source called Dutch Passion dives even deeper into how cannabis products were threatening emerging plastics. They add, 
At the same time, as Aslinger was arranging the prohibition of cannabis around 1937, DuPont registered their first patent on nylon. This was a synthetic fiber called nylon because it was partly developed in New York and partly developed in London. By making hemp cultivation illegal, there were no natural competition for nylon. Nylon was able to make billions in revenue for DuPont. With most of the early American cars built by GM, DuPont enjoyed a captive market for paints, varnishes, synthetic plastics, rubber, etc. All of which could have been made from hemp. The plastic industry was able to enjoy decades of growth without any meaningful competition from hemp or hemp products. That may change soon as scientists start to look for natural alternatives to plastic possibly made from plant-based starch or plant oils. Plastics may have been introduced with a good reputation, but the modern world can't wait to find a superior natural alternative to them. This source also adds that when Rudolf Diesel first created his diesel engine, his idea was to run it on biofuels such as hemp oil. His first diesel engine even ran on oil made from peanuts. There were multiple people that found a use for hemp aside from smoking it. Hemp is far more useful than I even realized before today. And of course, despite all this evidence that cannabis really wasn't the demonic evil plant people made it out to be, the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 did pass. It placed a tax on the sale of cannabis, which effectively banned its use and sales. As one source explains, since the government lacked the power to prohibit cannabis together, they levied a tax so punitive that no one could pay it. Another source claims that this was done because Anslinger had disguised the act as a tax revenue bill. Yet at this point, it was up against fossil fuels, massive bankers, racist lies, and nylon. So hemp didn't stand a chance, right? Well, sort of. Although these powerful wealthy men absolutely played a role, just how much of a role did they actually play? To me, this was all kind of starting to sound like a conspiracy theory, a way to take hemp down and a pretty solid argument for anyone that wants to talk about why hemp was banned. There are those that agree with me thus far too and say, yes, this was all one big conspiracy, a plot and the rich got richer when all was said and done. But to play devil's advocate and be sure I'm taking a look at both sides, there are those that argue there is no conspiracy here. After all, hemp hadn't been as useful as it once was and just because popular science called it the new billion dollar crop doesn't make that true. They also print front covers with flying cars on them, touting it as a revolutionary new technology when that reality hasn't been recognized yet. Hearst may have simply printed those papers because they sold well without being involved in a conspiracy. Plus nylon was going to have a fantastic market with or without hemp. I'm not sure I can picture hemp stockings having the same success as nylon ones did, I'll admit. Another source emphasizes the fact that many states already banned marijuana. Even though the 30s may have been ramping up these claims and working their way into the Tax Act of 1937, this didn't just suddenly happen when Anslinger arrived on the scene. It reads, New York City made cannabis prescription only in 1914, part to preempt users of over-the-counter opium, morphine, and cocaine medicines from switching to cannabis preparations, but with allusions to hashish use by Middle Eastern immigrants. In the West and Southwest, anti-Mexican sentiment quickly came into play. California's first marijuana arrest came in a Mexican neighborhood in Los Angeles in 1914, according to Geriger, the Los Angeles Times said. Sinister legends of murder, suicide, and disaster surrounded the drug. The city of El Paso, Texas outlawed reefer in 1915, two years after a Mexican thug allegedly crazed by habitual marijuana use killed a cop. By the time prohibition was repealed in 1933, 30 states had some form of pot law. The campaign against cannabis heated up after repeal. 
The fatal marijuana cigarette must be recognized as a deadly drug and American children must be protected against it, the Hearst newspapers editorialized. While Hearst sure sounded like a racist person, he didn't really have any hidden agendas either. Not to mention he was a buyer of newsprint, not a maker or seller of it. And he was pretty damn upfront with his ideologies. One reporter accusing a college professor of being a communist apparently said of their Hearst owned paper that quote, we just do what the old man orders. One week he orders a campaign against rats. The next week he orders a campaign against dope peddlers. Pretty soon he's going to campaign against college professors. It's all the bunk, but orders are orders, end quote. So is it better or worse that Hearst may have not actually given a damn about the racist misinformation he was spreading? He only spread it because it's sold. I guess I'll let you make that decision. Another point is that while there is an Anslinger Mellon connection, some historians find no evidence of a DuPont Mellon connection. General Motors was historically associated with Morgan Group during that period. Mark Mizrucci, a professor of sociology and business administration at the University of Michigan, told me in an email interview in 2003. Sociologist G. William Domhoff of the University of California at Santa Cruz, author of Who Rules America, concurred, saying it was safe to state there was no connection. And in the 440-page tome considered the definitive account of American banking and corporate finance during the Depression era, Japanese historian Tian Kango does not mention even the smallest financial connection between DuPont and Mellon. The truth of this, as far as I could find, is far more depressing. While I won't pretend that DuPont and Aslinger and all these players sure as hell helped, it was ultimately racism that did lead to hemp being banned. From the campaigns against opium and alcohol to the crack pandemic of the 80s, all of it was fueled by racism and culture wars conflated with the fear of crime. Hearst may have fed that racism and Anslinger may have been the voice of some truly disgusting mindsets, but in actuality, pot isn't illegal because paper and nylon companies didn't want to compete with hemp. And honestly, I was of the mindset that that's why it was banned. So learning this was you know, definitely new for me. Maybe I wanted to believe that because to some extent, it's easier to blame Hearst, Anslinger, and a few other awful individuals for what happened than an entire country's racist history. If we look at the pattern as a whole, then there's no denying that the conflation between race and drugs is still going strong to this day. One source writes, New York's draconian Rockefeller drug laws passed in 1973 as Governor Nelson Rockefeller was trying to look tough on crime were the harbinger of the federal mandatory minimums of the 1980s. The result was that more than 90% of the state's drug prisoners are black or Latino. During the crack hysteria of the late 1980s, both federal and many state crack laws were designed to snare street dealers and bottom level distributors, giving them the same penalties as powder cocaine wholesalers. The racial results were obvious almost immediately. In overwhelmingly white Minnesota, more than 90% of the people convicted of possession of crack in 1988 to 1989 were black. In the early 1990s, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Southern California went more than five years without prosecuting a white person for crack. That pattern still holds. In 2003, 81% of the defendants sentenced on crack charges nationwide were black, and law enforcement didn't spare the African-American innocent. In an August 1988 drug raid on an apartment block in Dalton Avenue in South Central Los Angeles, 88 city cops smashed walls and furniture with sledgehammers and axes, beat people with flashlights and poured bleach on residents' clothes and arrested two teenagers who didn't live there on minor drug charges. Many contribute this conspiracy to the 1973 book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, written by Jack Herer. As compelling as Herer's arguments may be, myth-making goes both ways. 
The fear of marijuana came long before Anslinger and his friends arrived on the scene. Anslinger, the press, and others may have certainly helped this process along, but make no mistake, they are not the sole cause and articles that call them responsible are misleading. After all, once this Marijuana Tax Act was passed, the racism and discrimination we saw earlier began to manifest itself into real numbers. Statistics show that in the first full year after the act was passed, black people were three times more likely to be arrested for violating narcotic drug laws than whites, and Mexicans were nearly nine times more likely to be arrested for the same charge. Though it was later ruled to be unconstitutional and later became part of the 1970 Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act, these laws were still in place for just over three decades. Race and its conflation with drugs still exist today. Frustratingly, we don't need Anslinger for that. Honestly, I could probably make an entire part two to this episode about why marijuana stayed illegal for so long, Nixon's war on drugs, the racism of that era, and the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. But for today, I wanted to discuss why it became illegal in the first place. So with that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Thank you so much for making it to another one. I love you guys and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.